0: Welcome back to Driven by Cause. This episode is brought to you by Arriva and Microsoft, the industry's only completely integrated and fully automated all-in-one digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Jay Fisk. How are you today, Jay? It's
1: a great day in Seattle, David. How are you doing there?
0: I'm wonderful, especially because we have such a special guest. For this episode, Brock Warner is a certified fundraising executive and is the author of the bestseller from the ground-up digital fundraising for nonprofits. As the co-founder of his consulting firm, Broccoli, Brock has become a senior leader in the international aid sector and mental health. Brock has raised millions of dollars and developed multiple successful campaigns, partnerships, and sector innovations. Welcome, Brock. Thanks so much for having me. It's a a pleasure. Well, we're so happy to have you here, Brock. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Brock, can you share with our listeners some information about yourself and how you got started in the nonprofit industry?
2: Sure thing. I have been close to 15 years now. I've been in the fundraising world. It started like a lot of fundraisers on accident. It was a summer job in a hospital not too far from where I am now. It was a hospital foundation. And it was a summer job. Clean clean out the storeroom, uh, answer answer the phone, answer a few emails. But it it blossomed from there. There was opportunities to start looking for some in kind uh, products for the local golf tournament, things like that. And I kind of fell in love with it. And being a small hospital, we were our offices were inside the larger hospital, and you saw donors coming through the doors and sharing how much the work and the impact was for them. And so uh, I just kind of fell in love with it from there. And then learned that. This is actually a job. This is like an actually a profession that you can pursue. And there are there are programs that do that. And so I took a postgraduate certificate program at Humber College in Toronto, which had an internship component at Amnesty International. And gosh, it just it just snowballed from there. It felt like getting thought out of a cannon <laughs> leaving school. And yeah, 15 years later, here I am now. I yes, I co co-own and co-run a small boutique consultancy called Broccoli with my business partner, Holly H. Pollen. That's where the name comes from, Brock and Holly. And we are uh, a really good counterpoint to one another in that I really like working in digital and innovations and strategy. And she loves doing direct mail, production management, tried and true techniques for storytelling. And writing, and so together we we are able to craft and support charities who want to do integrated campaigns, specifically for individuals who are motivated by great storytelling and strong asks. So, uh, we've been doing that for about two years now, and I'm based in Ontario, Canada.
1: You know, you're the author of the bestseller uh, from the ground up: digital fundraising for nonprofits. And in your book, you explain why it's imperative for nonprofits to build a strong and effective digital fundraising program. Uh, Can you share with our listeners uh, some of the items that make up a digital fundraising program? I think there's people might hear that term and kind of surmise what it is, but I think it's probably better from your words, kind of lay it out for us.
2: I've been teaching at Humber College, the same same program that I took over a decade ago. Uh, I returned and have taught for a few years, integrated campaign management to planning. And these are students who are hearing about this for the first time. And so it's really the curriculum from that course is what shaped this book. And so we start from a very, very, very simple place when we talk about what does a program, what is a program made up of and what does it need? And so we start higher at things like planning. You need need to plan. We reinforce the importance of execution. So can you do what you put in those plans? Then we move on and talk about management and measurement. And we talk about consistency. So we will, I no doubt we will get there in this interview and in every engagement I have with a client, we've, of course, we will talk about email campaigns and social media targeting, and those are all going to be components of it. But really, if you don't have planning, execution, measurement, management, and consistency in place, call it, call it a day. <laughs> um, and you know, what? The, and then once you have those things, a uh, list Gosh, you know, you can never, you can never undervalue or under, understate the importance of a great email list, as well as a direct mail list. If you have it, having engagement on your social media channels is really important. And stories, easier said than done, but having stories that really communicate the impact of your work, the opportunity that donors have to participate and to support that work, and stories that move people to action. So that story is that really, if the story is funnel shaped, we want people to come up to the other end of that willing and able to give.
0: That's phenomenal. I, I couldn't agree with you on all those parts. And I think a really important word was consistency, which in your book outlined four principles of building a digital fundraising program, which are understand it, design it, build it, and then finally burn it down. Wow. Can you share what these four stages mean and how you can help the nonprofit organizations achieve digital fundraising success? And I know we don't have a long enough time, but to give a highlight on this would be great,
2: Brock. The book, like you mentioned off the top, it's called From the Ground Up. What we're doing in the book is really just trying to extend that metaphor. The first section, understand it, takes a very broad approach. And what we do is we try and encourage the users to think about the system as a whole, you know. So like just how understanding that there is a landscape in which all of the work you're about to do is going to happen and what you can understand about that landscape the better and encouraging the readers to think through what is most important and what is going to be fun but may not be important we use the the example of pace layering which is something that comes up a lot in software development but it actually has its roots in architecture that there are things that are going to move very slowly, but they'll likely hold the most power. That's that's going to be like the foundation of your building. It's going to be big and it's going to be heavy. And it's also not going to likely change for the life of the house once you build it. So it's going to have a lot of power, but it's going to move really slowly. And then as you add layers on top, those things are going to be important. They're going to get a lot of attention, but they're also going to change really fast. So the, the thinnest layer out at the top, kind of like the pictures you hang on the wall. You know, you should, of course, you should love them. You should want to look at them every day. You should put thought into them, but they they could be gone six months from now. They're, it's fast. It's fast fashion. So the understand section is really just about some of these core foundational thoughts about what is to come and why are we going to s- sequence the work in that way so that hopefully everyone's on the same page. Uh, It's also where we cover some really basic core definitions that are going to be used throughout the book. The second section, design it, this is kind of like the blueprint stage. So this is where we're walking the reader through how you might want to, on paper, configure these building blocks that you just learned about in section one. So how might this block attach to that block and why? And then We encourage them to think about the purpose for each of those decisions. So, because every program is gonna have nuance and a little difference uh, between them. That leads into building it, the third section. Building it is where we get into the copywriting and actually giving things the shape and the color and the tone and the voice to bring your work to action. So we talk about storytelling structure. We try and get like, like really practical about storytelling circles as a frame that could help people who would consider themselves not a writer, but everyone can learn. It's a a teachable skill. So we talk through storytelling. We talk specifically about calls to action, what makes a good call to action so that you're clear in your purpose. We talk about scheduling, what, when, what sorts of messages at what time of year and why. This is where we're really putting it all together. And those three sections, that's the by and large the bulk of the book. If I had to give it a percentage, 96% of the book. It's like, that's, that's why you buy the book is for those first three sections. The fourth section, burn it down. This is where innovation enters the chat. This is where we're talking about things to watch for and things you might want to make your own, uh, where you might find inspiration to change things in your program. But really, if you haven't done the first three things if you haven't designed something and built something and began to measure it and manage it then you shouldn't you shouldn't be racing to innovate and rub it out the door you should you should do that innovation from a place of like thoughtful analysis of results so far
0: Hey thank you that was that's really great. I hope people go out and read your book because I think it's awesome. you often emphasize the importance of design thinking for more and I love this by the way donor-centric fundraising. Can you elaborate on this idea and provide some strategies nonprofits can use beginning today?
2: Sure. design thinking is a I think a, like a fascinating methodology and a whole body of knowledge exists out there for design thinking. But I think that the nonprofit fundraising world has been slow to adopt it or understand how it can be adapted to the design of a fundraising program. And so I've been keen to try and figure that out for the last 10 years or so. And the reason why is because design thinking at its best should allow you to offer something to your audience, in our case, donors, that feels really specific to them and it really meets their needs and their challenges, uh, but it also serves your purpose as well. So when I'm thinking of design thinking, I'm not so much thinking about changing programming models on the delivery side, or even fundamentally changing how funds are dispersed. It's about finding out like what makes a person tick and the better we can understand what makes a person tick, the better we might be able to reflect those values and beliefs and motivations back to them through the stories we tell and the ways in which we tell them. When I think of design thinking, an image that pops into my head right away is a is a bell curve for good reason, a lot of nonprofits and programming lives in this middle of the bell curve. Like there's a lot of similarity in the ways we do things. And there's often good reasons for the similarities because we have best practices, and leading practice. We have benchmark reports. We have studies that people are releasing and that all informs the justification for the core. But I think that once you've explored that territory, the most interesting insights and opportunities are gonna exist out on those edges, out in those like deep waters where few people are willing to to go. And I think if we can spend some time out on those outlier edges, we might find something that is very specific and personal to your organization and to your donors, and we could bring that back to the center. So we might find that there's certain messages, certain stories, certain tactics that are resonating with donors that were slipping under the radar because they existed on the outside, and let's bring them back in and integrate them into the best practices that you might already be doing in your campaign. So you might find your next inspiration for an email subject line test there. Uh, You might find inspiration for your next stewardship report format there. And so you bring it in, test it against your controls, and you might be really surprised with with what you you come back. And it'll only make you, it'll only uh, distinguish you from your peers who we're all operating alongside day to day we're all talking to a lot of the same audiences and constituencies so the more we can distinguish ourselves the the better i, I think
1: i know just from anecdotal uh, and and from talking to a lot of people that the open rate on emails is hovers around 19 percent uh, give or give or take a few percent of points one or the other and uh, many nonprofits utilize uh, email marketing to connect you know with with their donor database can you outline for us some uh, successful email marketing programs uh, to use uh, as part of a digital fundraising program and, and, and how you can use that to maybe increase or some technique you can use to increase the open rate as well?
2: I'll say first that open rate has become a less and less reliable metric in our marketing platforms to understand how many people are actually opening your emails. So there are there is declining open rates um, are being reported anecdotally and in the dashboards that email marketers are all using, but that may not necessarily in all cases mean that fewer people are opening your emails. And this has to do with some of the data and privacy sharing that is happening between Apple and third-party providers who are helping people send their emails. So the data of everyone who opens may not be getting passed back to your email marketing platform. And in fact, the MR benchmarks report, which is one of the most comprehensive reports annually that we have on digital metrics and measurements, I believe that they've even stopped reporting on open rate benchmarks year to year just because it's inconsistent. So what else do we have? We have click rates. Uh, we can have uh, landing page statistics. If you have even a simple Google Analytics snippet installed on your web page or your donation form those might be more meaningful metrics and so while open rate is great open rate never told us much more than how great our subject lines might have been or our open rates or the health overall of our list so a good open rate would probably mean that you had all those ducks lined up in a row and a poor open rate probably just meant you need to look at those three things list health subject lines and maybe you're from your from name. Uh, Well, click rates and landing page statistics and even conversions, if you can measure and manage your conversion rates straight to donation, those are gonna really tell you if you have messaging that resonates, if your timing is on point.
0: You know, you're the co-founder of Broccoli, a fundraising consulting firm. You've helped clients raise millions of dollars for their missions. Uh, Your firm and yourself have emphasized the importance of diversifying revenue sources and having a multi-channel approach to your donors or to their donors, how does technology play a role in this strategy?
2: I think we all know, and I suspect that all of your listeners know implicitly that technology is powering so many of the interactions that we wanna have with our donors, even if those are offline interactions. So even if those are coffee chats, in-person events, open houses, there's a good chance that those invitations are being mailed or emailed out after you've pulled the list out of your your database, which is so there's a piece of technology right there, your CRM, your donor database, your email marketing platform, technology is empowering your ability to communicate with the right people at the right time, with the right message. And so how we collect, store and manage data with technology, it has a direct correlation to our ability to personalize, segment, analyze, prove, all of those other activities that we wanna do after. So I think that organizations who may, if they have not in the past been thoughtful about the capabilities of their, their database or their marketing platform, I would encourage them to start asking tough questions about what data can be stored with permission and how can we take advantage of it? So do we know, for example, if a person arrives on our into our email marketing list, do we know where they came from? Like, do we know that it came through a website signup form versus they uh, filled out a piece of paper at a table at an event, or did they purchase something through the website if you sell products? And if so, what did they buy? Because each of these little data points, while they may or may not have an immediate use, They become one of those building blocks that you start to build on later. So I would say technology at its, that's how that's how um, deeply I think it runs and can affect our decision making. Now, on top of that, as you start to do those things, there's a lot of technology that we are knowingly or not using on a day-to-day basis. And you may not be, the average fundraiser may not be using each of these platforms to their full capability. Let's, we could take Meta, for example. Very likely your organization would have a Facebook page where you're communicating with people and probably an Instagram page. Maybe you've connected those two with the in the back end of Meta with your Meta business suite. But uh, Meta business manager, which is like the more enterprise level, though free product, where is where you can start to connect those pages as well as connect uh, Pixel from their page. You could connect a pixel, you could add it to your website, update your privacy policy and your cookie consents if necessary. And that's where you could start to then connect website behaviors to your audiences. And with that, you could start to do targeting. You might be able to then also get some uh, completed or not completed donation signals coming from your donation form. Some do this better than others, but all of this data starts to connect and create a web which you could then use to power your next social media campaign so that when you spend, if you're gonna spend money on promoting a post, you can have a lot more confidence in who is seeing it, when are they seeing it, how many people saw it, and also how well did it convert? So technology at its very core is making possible all of these other things. And I, I think that if there is a thoughtful consideration at the center on those building blocks, those, those things that move slowly but have a lot of power, then a lot of connections are broken that open up possibilities for the future.
0: Yeah, no, I love that you say uh, integrated. And I think there's so many, I don't think there's so many, but I think there's some amazing uh, technology that does exist that is fully integrated and automated. And when you really link it all together as one solution with one unified database, you know, you're streamlining, you know, organizations, their staff. I, I also think that with the right piece of technology or technologies that are integrated and automated that will also, which we hear a lot about, about increasing donor acquisition and increasing donor retention and increasing um, donor engagement. So I'm glad about your thoughts and, and your ideas on this. It's so important to help these nonprofits out there. And, and leading to that, it's no surprise that, of course, AI is a hot talk amongst nonprofits. And, I don't know if re- what it really means for job security, but you recently shared that you feel AI is not a foe, but rather it could be a tool for fundraisers. Can you share your ideas around AI in the future for nonprofits?
2: Yeah, I love talking about this. We could we could have done a whole podcast just on this <laughs> this, this question, but uh, to maybe start with opportunities and ways that I'm finding practical uses of it right now. Um, I've found like, so we, we do campaigns integrated direct marketing campaigns for clients and, uh, some of the tools that Photoshop and now even Canva have started to implement around generative fill capabilities is, um, become such a practical, helpful tool for us, where if we have, um, we need a header image that is a big, long rectangle, but the photo that the client provides is a square. There's now tools where it will generatively fill. It will use AI to fill all that extra space that didn't exist before, and it will look incredibly seamless. We did this one for a client. The it was a tall vertical picture with a great subject centered on the image, but we needed a big long one. And then what it filled it with was a fence that never existed. Doesn't <laughs> there? There was no fence, and that that fence probably doesn't really exist, but it looks really convincing, and your eye is still drawn to the subject. And that would have been such a pain in the butt marketing challenge before. So these are simple things, but we encounter them every single day. And as I've talked to other charities, they said, oh my gosh, I can look back at my photo library now. And there's this like photo of these great students, but they've got a construction zone behind them. And so we've never been able to use it because of the construction zone. And now you can just select that. And then you've got freeze and waterfall or something happening in the back. So those are, these are some really practical uses that we're actually using it for right now. But some of the gaps we've encountered is the copywriting, which is almost, I feel like everybody's asked it a question or maybe asked it to write a bit of copy. Our experience is that the copy has been really generic. And that's because it's being built from this large language model, great from the internet. So it's gonna put you in the middle of that bell curve that we talked about earlier. Like it's gonna give you something that it thinks you want to see based on what other people seem to have wanted to see in the past so very very generic and i'll be frank so we've had a couple this is a business like I, i run go run a business my clients don't hire me for generic copy and so we've not had it's not affected our creative side of our business Because we've never we've never we've never strived to give something generic. And if they wanted something generic, they could either hire someone else or they could use these tools. We are really trying to find through like deep understanding of a brand and a mission and past results and what is driving engagement on different channels. We're trying to bring all of these things together to then give them something that only that organization could say believably. And I think that AI today, as of no, this, this day in 2023 isn't yet doing that, but the day will come and that's fine. And then I think that our roles as fundraisers will be to use those to our full advantage as ethically as possible so that we can then spend all the time that is freed up building relationships, the emerging technology around context windows, which is um, the current like if you've used chat gpt and gpt3 that's using a large language model of scraped off the web a context window kind of a think of it like you're building it you're, you're building that model yourself so you're putting in all sorts of your own content and it's a window into a context that you created and then you can do all of the things that you were asking chat gpt before but the answers are being informed by the background information that you've plugged in Oh,
1: interesting. So, your it's your own your own personal AI database.
2: Yeah, at the front end of this, there's a company called Anthropic, and most of those most of the founders of Anthropic are from OpenAI, who built and own ChatGPT. And Anthropic have these context windows. That uh there's a demo on their website where they take financial filings of Netflix, which is which are publicly available, but if you're not an accountant, you it might be difficult to make head nor tails of these like 90 page doc market filings. Uh, so you just load all of those in and it summarizes it. And then you could just ask the questions like, is it profitable in X, Y, Z? What are the core areas? So you could imagine doing this with a context window that is built with not only financial filings, but shareholder reports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And imagine if you were a prospect researcher who otherwise would have been combing Google's and grant databases and paid searches, uh, a lot of time would have just been freed up preparing that summary report for your executive director, your director of major gifts, and freed up for you to do more strategic analysis and maybe be more involved in the discussions of how do we approach this person and when, and what's the the approach that are, should we take a CSR approach versus an ESG versus a UN DRP approach so um context windows i think are really interesting and and i don't and uh for example amazon i believe just took a four billion dollar equity stake in anthropic and so i think that they see a company like amazon is taking that much of an interest i'm i'm starting to take an interest for when it how might it filter all the way down to right. us nonprofits it's great
1: well well we have spoken a, a lot about your work today and uh, a little bit maybe a some some things that maybe you weren't planning on talking about but was very interesting I'm sure for our listeners but I think uh, we'd be curious to know what is something about you personally that might surprise our audience to find out what's going on in your personal life
2: I'll tell you what first jumped into my mind that you might not expect is the I love direct mail like for a person who wrote a digital a digital fundraising book I I love a good direct mail package and we love doing them for our clients you know we had one recently where our our vendor partner we use the auto pen they had this nice little shaky hand signed signature on the outside like all oh, that all that stuff that old school stuff that still works i love it and i love finding ways then to make the connections between those tried and true tactics in direct mail and integrating it online and we like to do that because it tends to work well for both like all all boats rise when both are working in, in harmony with one another. So I think some people don't realize. And I also love prospect research. You got a hint of it in my my last answer about context, windows, and AI. I, I love prospect research and what goes into it. And it never crosses really day to day with the work I do with Broccoli. But you prospect researchers, I think you're worth your weight. Gold, <laughs> I think they do great work and power so much that we do. Um, But gosh, you, you asked more about personal life.
1: Oh, uh, hobbies uh,
2: bat hobbies bat, yeah uh, yeah you know. okay I got I got one is um I I do some woodworking on the weekends right. and i I like making bat houses I've been making some bat houses for right. out the neighborhood I live nearby a cemetery and at the cemetery I approached them and asked, do you have bats and if so, do you want a bat house <laughs> because trees are coming down and and bats are Uh, In my area, little brown bats, they tend to be crawling up inside the bark of dying trees and um, habitat loss is a very real thing, especially in my community. There's a lot of building and development. So uh, if the bats, the bats will have a choice between uh, getting into your attic, which I don't want and I'm sure you don't want, or um, a bat house that we might be able to build as like an intermediate shelter. I just saw that there wasn't many of them ha- going up in the community. They're not that hard to build. There's lots of free plans online. I can I can knock one out a few hours, and I just give them mostly away as gifts to friends, or I barter for them. Um, just wow. yeah, they're neat. And if you if you have no idea what a bat box looks like, Google it because it probably doesn't look uh, what you might be thinking. It certainly doesn't look like a birdhouse.
0: Hey, we always like to finish off the show by asking, "What is something I didn't ask you or Jay didn't ask you that you wish we did?"
2: Well, there's a, there's a podcast, uh, Tim Ferriss has a podcast and I've one of his standing questions of guests, I believe is, um, something along the lines of what is a book you've recently given away as a gift. So not just what, what's the last thing you read or what are you reading now? What if, what have you given away? And I love that question and no one's ever asked me for it. So I'm going to say say you've asked me. So, um, there's a, there's like a local nonprofit here and, a small small team who are really just like go-getters and and working really hard and i've got a whole shelf of books that i i don't touch enough and a lot of them and often because i've read them so i gave four books to a team of four there was uh, originals by adam grant which is a, a good read about you know trying to blend interests rather than specializations it's a case for the generalist a pattern language by Christopher Alexander which is actually an architectural text it's like a 900-page home but uh it's the kind of book you just flip through you don't read it cover to cover but it's all about how pieces of communities fit together and I reference it a few times in my book. I'm obsessed with that book and I've given away a few copies. Another was a book by a fellow Canadian Mike Michael Prosserman called uh, Building Unity, which is all about like small teams and sort of getting from nothing to something in a nonprofit Context. He was a B-boy uh, breakdancer who had a pretty catastrophic neck injury, and that set him off into a, a whole different type of work, but with, within that community of breakdancing, B-boys, and B-girls. So, like, really fascinating take. And then the last one for probably the youngest person on the team was a book called uh, Day One, or I think it's This is Day One by Drew Dudley. There's another canadian motivational speaker and it's all about like leadership leadership in the personal sense first so that you can be a leader outwardly and he has some incredible ted talks with millions of views so drew dudley if you've never heard him so i gave you four for the price of one but give away books by the way like that's my that's that's a piece of advice for listeners that if you've got books collecting dust give them to people don't worry about getting them back if you can help it uh, you never know you never know the impact you might have on somebody
0: Hey, Brock, that's great. Hey, we'll be right back after this message from our sponsors.
3: We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our client success. We are with our clients for good. We are Arriva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Arriva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software text to bid virtual and mobile bidding software, and text to fund text-based donation software, are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and gateless. Visit Areva.com and reach out today and see how Areva can help your nonprofit organization go further.
0: Welcome back, everyone. It's time for Ask the Maestro. Where you, the audience, ask us anything you want to know? Jay, what question do you have for us today?
1: Well, uh, David, our question comes today from Mary. And, uh, Brock, I'd like you to, you know, mine will put you on the spot and kind of let you take a take a shot at the answer to this. But uh, be curious to, to hear what you have to say about it. Mary says, we communicate to our constituents frequently through email and social media to update them on our successes and to make our fundraising appeals. However... I find that our donors are beginning to unsubscribe from our emails. Do you have any strategies for combating high unsubscribe rates? Are, are, there, are there other ways we can communicate with them as well?
2: The way Mary's described it there, that they are reporting on impact and updates and fundraising. I'm imagining one of these kitchen sink emails where it's got a little bit of everything, And then maybe tucked down at the bottom, there's a little ask, or maybe somewhere in the middle, there's a story that if you click through, then it, it asks for funds. And I think in a, if that were the true that context that there's something for everybody in that email, or that's the goal there might, you might be losing them. And it's actually not speaking specifically to the thing or time or person that they connected with most. And so, creating emails that people will want to read is what's going to keep them on the list and keep them engaging and knowing what it is they want to read is going to probably, hopefully exist somewhere in your database based on how, how did they get in there? So to go, this goes all the way back to where we probably were seven minutes into this interview that if they signed up on your website, what did that form say? Like, did they fill out the form that said, we wanna send you updates about our work? Um, did they f- sign up because it's, do you wanna uh, stop climate change? Then what was the promise that was made in the beginning? And then ask yourself whether or not you are fulfilling that promise. And then again, uh, or another another way you might combat unsubscribes is trying to segment your list as as best as you're able so that it feels like you're fulfilling a promise. So that you're fulfilling your other end of the bargain of this uh transaction that you have which is that they give you your their data and their email and permission to contact them what was it in return for and just make sure that you fill that as best you can so for some organizations that might look like interests of certain program areas so if you have like a housing food and shelter are your three program areas and someone if somehow some way you were to know that someone signed up for housing updates, then let's just make sure they get lots and lots of housing updates, because it might be when they get the shelter and food updates that they are losing interest because it's not what they originally signed up for. So the more you can understand and then reflect back what it is they signed up for, the better. Um, and then also separate out your fundraising asks as well. So there will be people who, there will always be people who unsubscribe and Having a thick skin about that is probably is probably is a skill we could all we could all develop. And so, if your fundraising asks are set aside and dedicated, you will likely have better fundraising results. You'll probably get more conversions because it's very clear that who, what you were asking for. Yeah. And if a person unsubscribes to that, then I think it's pretty, they are not a donor. Like they're not they're not really they are no longer an active and engaged donor and for them to like self-select and leave as an unsubscriber dings a little bit in the short term but long term it just means that the list that you're left with is far more qualified and willing and able to give and you can celebrate that win a little more than you mourn the loss of the unsubscriber
1: What I'm hearing you say is it's not always a good thing to to provide too much information you know, putting everything into one is probably not a good good route. Be more selective. Be more targeted. Tell them what they that's want right. to hear. Don't tell them what you necessarily want to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, everybody, uh, that's all the time we have for Ask the Maestro on this edition of Driven by Cause. Um, but um, if you have a question you'd like to submit, please submit it to us. And, uh, you know, we don't know, next time around, next Driven by Cause uh, episode, we might be using your question and have our guest respond to it as well.
0: Hey, Brock, thank you so much for being here today. It was truly a pleasure getting to hear from you. And I know our audience really
2: liked that. Thank you, David and Jay, for having me. This was this was fun.
1: It, it, it was for us as well. Thank you so much for, for it. David, I guess, uh, I guess we'll, we'll say goodbye until next time, right?
0: Yeah, well, for all our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, which I hope you did, Make sure to leave us a positive comment and a five-star rating, not four stars, but a five-star rating below so we can continue to bring you more episodes like this. I also want to thank our sponsors, Arriva, uh, which is truly the only all-in-one online fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software, as well as Microsoft, a division of uh, um, Arriva, which provides amazing auction software from all aspects, from live auctions, silent auctions, silent bidding, raffle tickets, uh, just amazing. And we're helping thousands of nonprofits like yours daily. Make sure you click to subscribe to stay up to date with all the Driven by Cause and join us next time. Make it a great day.